For example, it could be possible the moment of the creation of the human soul was during one of these earlier evolutions of the human animal. The first two creation accounts in the scripture contradict each other. So in the first creation account, animals are made, and then man and woman are created at the same time. In the second creation story, first Adam is created, then God creates the animals, and then God creates Eve. So we either have to hold there's an error in the scripture, or the authors aren't intending this to be read in the way that we understand history now. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome back to Physically Spiritual. Today, I want to talk about creation and evolution. A lot of people think that if you're a Christian, you can't believe in evolution and vice versa, that if you believe in evolution, there's no way you would ever be a Christian and think that God created the world. Here's a quote from Pope Pius Twelfth, All the way back in the 1940s, he wrote a document on human origins. And in this document, he talked about both theological ideas of human origins and scientific ideas. Here's what he said. The church does not forbid the teaching of evolution. He says it needs to be treated in accord with the present status of human disciplines and theology. Right. So even 70 years ago, the church wasn't condemning that somebody would uh, study an evolutionary theory or consider that uh, that evolution was involved in the process of humanity being what it is today. But it needs to be carried out both in accord with science and theology. He goes on and says, Yet some with daring boldness transgress the freedom of discussion, acting as if the origin of the human body from previous existing and living matter were already certain and demonstrated. So what he's saying here is that some make too much of what we know by science. So at the time he was saying, well, we're not 100% sure about evolution, so we can't uh, leave no room for people not to agree with this. And I would say even more than that, sometimes we make more of the idea of evolution than what we really should. So let's think of it this way. Um, some people have a philosophy called neo-Darwinism. Darwin was uh, the man who wrote The Origin of Species, kind of launching the idea of evolution into the scientific mainstream. And with that, um, some people don't just make scientific claims, but they make philosophical claims, meaning they're making claims about truth that can't be tested by measuring something or, or by the scientific method. What they say is, since we have evidence that things came to exist through a process of evolution, that means there's nothing spiritual about them. Just the process of adaptation to an environment, the process of growth, um, or whatever explanation for the evolution explains everything about the physical world. And so we've demonstrated that there is no spirit, that there is no God. But like I said, this isn't a scientific claim. This is a philosophical belief that they have. So when I talk about evolution, uh, don't mistake in me for taking on this kind of neo-Darwinian theory that I am denying God's involvement in the creative process, that I'm denying God as the creator, or that I'm denying the truth of the scriptures. So if we believe in both creation 
and evolution. This means that we believe that we could be here and there are two simultaneous explanations for this being the case. In a sense, there's sort of two different authors to us as humans. Um, there's a divine author, an, an original or ultimate cause for us being here. And then there's also a, a natural cause. There's um, a natural process that God used to uh, make us what we are today. If you're a Christian, you actually already believe something um, that has dual authorship. You probably believe in the scripture, that the scripture is the word of God. But the scripture also had human authors, meaning this document that we have, uh, while we believe it's God's inspired word and, and communicates God's truth and uh, that God is the true author of scripture, we believe that God used human authors, that God used real people uh, being involved in their whole life and inspiring them to write in, in a way um, that reflects their own personal grammatical foibles and, and vocabulary, uh, the culture of their time and their own experiences. And so these people are, are like instrumental authors. They're, they are true authors, um, but God's using them in a way that fully involves their human faculties uh, to create the scriptural text. So when we're thinking about the scripture, we want to avoid two extremes. On the one hand, God's not like a puppet master and the scripture authors are like puppets. So that would make the authors, the human authors of the scripture, not real authors, just like uh, God robots and God's controlling them with a remote control from out, out in the universe somewhere. No, that's not what we mean. The, the human author had use of their faculties, the use of their mind, um, and they were truly writing the words. They weren't just receiving the words from God as a dictation. On the other hand, we might consider that God wasn't actually involved in the process. So that the text is just a work of human ingenuity, human creativity, that it's just what the author said and believed. But on the other hand, God wasn't involved in that writing process, but sort of after the fact or in a secondary way, kind of blessed the text or gave the text something additional, almost like they're human words that are elevated to scripture after the fact. In this case, it would really be a human author who was the true author. And God was just sort of the, the promoter who came in after the fact to make it more than that. So our belief about scripture is somewhere in the middle, that God is true author, the ultimate source, and that it's God's truth being communicated, but God's using a human person as a real author whom he's inspiring, and they're using all of their faculties, their, their knowledge, their ability uh, to communicate um, their experience, but also communicate the truth that God wants to give us through the text. So we as humans are in a way like this. We've come to be what we are as a human race by two authors. We're truly created by God, according to God's design and God's truth. Um, God in intended us to be the way we are. But on the other hand, there's a real natural process that's, that's uh, taken place where God has brought us to this point. So it wasn't God just controlling nature like a puppet master, um, supernaturally intervening at every stage and, and violently and aggressively forcing us to be what he wanted us to be. And on the other hand, it's not that God wasn't involved at all. Like God just sort of set everything in motion and designed it 
uh, the way he wanted it and then pressed the button and let it run and then stayed at a distance. No, the way that creation and evolution can work together is somewhere in the middle. So let's consider the way that God is involved in the world. Uh, one thing that's helpful is that creation might not just be a historic event. So sometimes when we think of creation as Christians, we think of it as something that happened in the beginning, that it was sort of what created the Big Bang or created the garden, but it was just a historical thing that happened. And then it ended. And now nature is here. Um, but God isn't still connected in the way that he was creating. So some theologians in, in the history of the church have given us a view of creation that's a little more um, involved than that. In a sense, what God had to do to make something from nothing, sometimes called creation ex nihilo, out from nothing, to make matter, to make our souls from nothing to something, um, is the same thing that God has to do to keep us in being, to be the thing that is beneath reality that keeps it being real. We might believe that God, uh, if he were to remove his presence from creation to become completely uninvolved in the created world, that we would just continue on our merry way now just without God in the picture. But from this point of view, this means that if God were to truly remove his involvement in the world, his presence from the world, that creation would cease to be, that it just wouldn't exist anymore. Once again, there would just be nothing other than God. So from this view, creation isn't just a historical event. It's an ongoing state of relationship between us and God. That it's not just that we were created by God, but that we are created by God. God's the, the uh, thing that explains reality, that holds us in being. And without God, we are nothing. But in this creation, God demonstrates his perfection to a greater degree by creating a world that evolves. So think of it this way. Uh, this is an example uh, by Father Nicanor Augustino, um, a Dominican priest. Uh, he says, what is it a greater thing an author could do to write a book or to create a book that writes itself. The greater book is the book that can write itself. Um, so while this is a limited analogy, it demonstrates the fact that a creation that evolves is in some way more perfect, a greater creation, a greater expression of God's glory than a creation that just requires God to move every piece at every time. So with this view, what does this mean about the scripture? Right, Because we do have creation accounts in the scripture that record uh, real things that we think happened. So here is an interesting quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. He's actually uh, paraphrasing St. Augustine when he says this. In relation to scripture, he says, first is to hold the truth of scripture without wavering. So first is to hold the truth of scripture. So there is truth in scripture. We need to hold that. Second is that since Holy Scripture can be explained in a multiplicity of senses, one should adhere to a particular explanation only in such measure as to be ready to abandon it, if it be proved with certainty to be false. Lest Holy Scripture be exposed to the ridicule of unbelievers and obstacles be placed to their belief. 
So what Aquinas is saying is that while we do hold that there is truth in Scripture, there's also a lot of different ways to interpret it. So the interpretations that we do hold, we have to be ready to change our mind about those things, because if we can demonstrate that it is absolutely false, whether by theology or philosophy or science, that means that we probably are misunderstanding the true sense of the scripture, that we don't really understand what God's trying to communicate through that text. And we do this because by holding on to our beliefs in this way, um, maybe we could identify this kind of posture towards scripture, that our interpretation must be right as like a fundamentalism. And if we take this approach to scripture, then we expose our faith to ridicule and we make it harder for other people to believe in the gospel. We put up barriers that are unnecessary. With this in mind, it's important to hold that we can have doctrine, meaning the church has defined dogmas and doctrines that we do believe in, and we believe those to be true. Um, so as we're exploring our science, if our, our scientific exploration contradicts our doctrine, then that means that we probably should work on our, our scientific theories, have a clear understanding of the universe. So there's this mutual back and forth between faith and reason, between science and religion, where we know our, our dogmas and doctrines are true. And on the other hand, um, th we know that there are good, true scientific theories, and it's the work of theology, philosophy, and uh, scientists of goodwill to work out the details in between. So what do we believe about these creation accounts in the scripture? What do we have to hold as Catholics to be true? One is that we do believe in a special creation of the human soul. So we do believe that the human soul was created by God at a moment in time, and since then hasn't evolved on the same process. So we believe that natural things evolve. So there's an evolutionary process of change and adaptation in the physical world, but the spiritual world doesn't necessarily have that same property. The second thing we do believe as a church is that there were historical a historical Adam, a historical first family that we're all, in a sense, descended from this original couple. And we also believe that there was a historical original sin, that these people were created with a certain design by God and that by their action, they lost uh, a connection with God. They lost their original uh, state of relationship with God. So we do believe that there are these truths, these doctrines that come through the text that we do believe. On the other hand, we don't consider these creation accounts to be history in the modern sense of history. Um, so a modern sense of history uses primary and secondary sources to create like a scientific and data-driven understanding of the events that happened. So one example why we don't hold this is that the first two creation accounts in the scripture contradict each other. So in the first creation account, we see that first animals are made and then Man and woman are created at the same time on the sixth day. That's the order of events. And the second creation story, first, Adam is created, then God creates the animals, and then God creates Eve. There's a direct contradiction between these two uh, verses in Genesis. So we either have to hold that one of these verses is true and one of them is false, meaning there's an error in the scripture, or we have to say that the author's aren't intending this to be read in the way that we understand history now, right? So uh, some people would say that the first book of Genesis is really a piece of poetry. It's Hebrew theological poetry. And the author's trying to communicate 
deep truths about reality through the prose, uh, but the intention isn't uh, to give a historical account. On the other hand, uh, the second creation story is almost kind of like a, a, a piece of mythology, like a Greek mythology, although we don't believe it's myth in that sense that it didn't actually happen. We believe it points to real historical events, but that the intention isn't to communicate those events as uh, an exact historical work of data. Um, so with this understanding, we can see that there's a deeper truth that the authors are trying to communicate through the text and that these texts are true, that there's something real that it's saying about the world and it's something meaningful and it's something we can be certain about. But on the other hand, they don't have to contradict each other because the sense that we're interpreting the scripture, we have to take into account what the author was trying to say, the human author and the divine author. So all this begs the question, um, when we're talking about evolution, what kind of evolution are we talking about? And how specifically are we claiming that God was involved in the process? So one thing about evolution is there's sort of three different kinds of evolution. There's the, so there's the original creation of something from nothing, and then the process of matter being uh, combined and organized to then generate stars and planets galaxies and solar systems. Um, and then there's a, another evolutionary process where we go from just matter to things being alive, right? Now these planets have organisms that, that live and grow and, and adapt to the environment. And then there's a third kind of evolution and that's human evolution. How do we go from an animal to a human person? How do we go from uh, something with just uh, sense impression and reaction to the world around it and uh, an internal sense to something or someone that creates literature and language and art and poetry and can, uh, can explore the world through science and, and it changes the environment around it in the way that other animals can't. So today I want to focus on that third kind of evolution, the evolution specifically of the human person. Um, some people try to make a distinction between what's called a biological human and a theological human. So a biological human means the process of physical evolution that brought our bodies to the state that they're in now, meaning we went from maybe some form of primate to some kind of primitive human humanoid to some kind of more contemporary human sort of creature to modern homo sapiens and uh, different evolutionary biologists study fossil records and, and define these different stages in the time periods that they happen. So this is really biological humanity, right? Where our genetic code is developed. On the other hand, we have to be theologically human. This means at the time when there's a special creation of the human soul, the, the human soul that's rational, that has uh, freedom of determining choice, uh, that we transcend just our instincts and can understand the world in a deeper way. So one thing to consider is that these two events may not line up the way we expect. For example, it could be possible that the moment of the creation of the human soul was during one of these earlier, um, these earlier evolutions of the human animal, that maybe it was before, uh, before Homo sapiens and before Neanderthals. So maybe both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens 
were in a sense theologically human. They have a rational eternal soul. And there's even evidence in our genetics that they uh, inter interbred, right? So we have, in a sense, Neanderthal genetics, some of us do today. Um, maybe it's later on in the process. Maybe it's much later on in the process. Uh, we don't know. And our, our theology doesn't make a claim that we have to exactly identify where this happens. And on the other hand, there's not really definitive science at this point of how these understandings might line up. All right, so this is a lot. I understand that this may be difficult to put together. I would encourage you to take a look at the show notes. With each show, I'm trying to give uh, detailed notes where I provide sources, uh, books, lectures, talks um, that you can go to and, and get deeper understandings of these concepts. Um, almost none of what I said is something I'm coming up with. <laughs> it, it all is coming from people that I've learned from, people that I've been inspired from. So I'd encourage you to take a look at the notes to really trace out where these thoughts come from and uh, how to understand them in a deeper way. So remember, we're not required to believe in evolution as believers. It's not a requirement that church places on us. And remember, science is always provisional. So while it's probably unlikely that we're going to come up with a different theory altogether, uh, we can remain open-minded to this theory improving and changing over time. But what I think we can do as believers is say that evolution is our best explanation for how our body came to be what it is now, meaning that, that it's a really helpful way to conceive of us, how we got here, how we work. Um, and by understanding how we work, how we function, it can give us a lot of insight into how we live our lives, how we should think about our sleep, our diet, the environment we put ourselves in. Um, so we can hold on to the idea of evolution loosely, use it as a tool, but also be ready to, to let it go if we have a better understanding in the future. So we can be open to the next scientific discovery. So let's get practical with this. How does this make any sense in our lives? Well, one, when we're asking questions of how to be healthy, how to be physically well, um, scripture may or may not have a lot to say about it. Uh, for example, when you're asking the question, how should I eat? Like, what should I eat? Um, you know, the scripture might have some things to say about it. Like we might, uh, for example, not want to eat food that was sacrificed to an idol, as the Acts of the Apostle says, because, well, this food, in a sense, was involved in something spiritually that we don't want to be involved in. Um, and maybe through theology, we come to understand a sense of virtue that an excessive amount of eating that's inordinate would lead to uh, gluttony, a sin of gluttony, a vice of gluttony, where we're eating excessively just for pleasure alone to the detriment of our body. Right, so we might get some ideas from scripture, but there's also a lot of other things we could learn about how we can eat to flourish. You know, there are things about our world that the author of the scripture uh, the human author of the scripture could have never conceived of, you know, like a modern supermarket. Uh, we, we don't often think that this is really, really recent in our human history. I mean, from the, from the perspective of evolution, it's like the last like micrometer of a football field. If you're laying out human evolution as those hundred yards, it's such a modern invention. So consider that if we are the product of an evolutionary process, meaning our bodies have come to expect a certain environment, uh, certain inputs, certain things that we're attracted to or, or pushed away from, and how different our contemporary environment is, 
that the modern supermarket is something that our body doesn't know how to handle. And that the way that we're being attracted or repulsed by the food is completely foreign to the way that our body's designed, what our bodies come to expect. So when we're in that environment, having that understanding can help us know that, um, that we need to really understand the way our body functions to then make the decisions about what's going to create wellness for us. Because the way that store is designed uh, is to make profit. <laughs> They're not looking to make you the best version of yourself. Um, so the way that that store is designed is also with an illusion of choice, right? There's tens of thousands of options in a modern supermarket. But if you look at the ingredient label, it's really just maybe a thousand different ingredients mixed up 10,000 different ways. Um, so a lot of what's there isn't real different choice. The way the food's packaged, the way the food's presented to you is in a way to hijack your evolutionary biology, to create certain feelings and experiences in you. Uh, so this modern supermarket is just one example of the way that our current environment or the place we are might be a mismatch to the conditions that brought us to be and be designed where we are. So this is a way that our scientific understanding of the human person can inform our lives in a way that our theological understanding really doesn't provide a lot of guidance other than, well, just don't try to go overboard um, and don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And, and sure, it can say more than that. But the point is, uh, these two ways of knowing um, give us a vision of being human that's so much more, that provides so much more specific input into our behavior. So I would encourage you, uh, as you're listening to these podcasts, just start reflecting about your life. Uh, what are ways that these ideas, the relationship between body and soul, the relationship between faith and reason, uh, considering evolution and creation, not as contradictory ideas, but as complementary ideas, how can these foundational ideas of how to conceive of reality inform our lives? What are ways that we can change and become more and more the people we've always wanted to be? Thanks for watching this episode of Physically Spiritual. If you're watching the show on YouTube, make sure to press the like button, subscribe to the Awakened Catholic YouTube channel, and turn on the bell notifications so that you can find out when new episodes are released. Also, it's super helpful if you could leave a review for the podcast on iTunes or your podcast player. At Awakened Catholic, we're dedicated to bringing people to truth through beauty. This show and all the shows here on Awakened Catholic are only possible because of people like you. You can become a part of what makes this all possible by making a tax-deductible donation for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a week. To join the Awakened Nation, visit awakencatholic.org forward slash join.